Farmer Ventures, the deal experts. Welcome to the Farmer Ventures podcast, where we talk to the experts about all things deal related in healthcare and beyond. I'm Adrian Dorks of Farmer Ventures. Landscape, asset value, accessing the market, positioning, and the actual deal process are all important components. But how important are they, especially in the current economic environment? Joining me on this show is Andrew Guise, who, prior to joining Pharma Ventures, has been an investment banker, biotech CEO, VC, and advisor. So he's ideally placed to give us key insights. That's one of the things that's sort of unique, we feel, about Pharma Ventures. We stand astride both the, the financial world and the technical world because we see our role as uh, translating science into value. Um, so, Andrew, perhaps we can start with um, maybe a little bit of your background and, and why you, you thought joining Pharma Ventures was, was a good thing to do. Well, I've had a varied experience, and I think it's that um, combined knowledge that you guys bring, the expertise, the granular knowledge that you have in the industry, uh, the fact that the team has been around for 30 years, um, the senior team management have been together for 15 years. You've seen and done deals across all the sectors of life sciences, and you bring um, hands-on experience because the senior management have all worked in the industry. Now, I cut my teeth at UBS doing investment banking, a wide variety of different transactions throughout um, all of life sciences. So buying, selling hospitals, med tech, biotech, pharmaceuticals, um, and then moved into biotech management. Um, I then moved into um, venture capital, um, and I found that it was easy to find people who were good at individual things, but it was really difficult to find advisors who could advise and handle every aspect of every transaction that I wanted to start advisory again, that my skills fitted really well with the skills that you guys have here at Pharma Ventures. Do you, do you think it's it's that industry experience? You know, normally we say both sides of the table, but actually there's about four sides of the table and you've been on all of them here. Do, do you think that experience is... is really necessary and that really helps make a good advisor versus you know because a lot of people they come out of university or whatever or do a do a further degree and then they do an mba and then they go straight into consultancy um sure they're very capable but they don't do that bit it's it's like doing a postdoc i guess is is it really needed I think it is. I mean, there's too many examples to go through where I found that um, if we'd had experts involved in certain transactions at an earlier stage, certain difficulties, shall we say, might have been avoided. I'll give an example of when I was at UBS, we were doing uh, an IPO of a company. We were literally about to price, and on the weekend, the patent attorneys on a Friday turned around and said, um, "There's a problem with the patent," and then the whole deal blew up. Now, if we'd got somebody involved at an earlier stage who had a better understanding of the science and the translation of that into a commercial uh, prospect, I think that deal could have been saved. When I was at Thrombogenics, we did uh, a listing of a phase one stroke compound. And obviously, that's a clinical graveyard. Um, very difficult. It was right when the market was turning. Um, we had a UK bank on board. Um, most of the UK bankers had said, oh, this is impossible. KBC said we can do this in Belgium. So we, we 
really took it there. And um, the UK bank bailed literally the day before we were about to announce the deal uh, and left us stranded. Again, if we'd had somebody on board who could have explained to them uh, the key aspects of the deal, um, which we eventually did. We had some great IR people, David Dybel at uh, Citygate, helped us to refine that story. And we brought on great investors like Anne Marden at JP Morgan. And all of this was possible because we had people who understood the fundamental science and knew how to describe it to people. And where there's, there are good people out there for running processes and transactions, and there are good management consultants out there for doing pieces of research, I didn't see anybody else in the marketplace, certainly in Europe, who was straddling the two of them, who could do the in-depth research, convert that into strategy, and then execute at the same time. And really, now that we've seen the change in the marketplace now, things are getting more difficult, capital is more constrained. This affects both private equity um, and biotechnology. In fact, all areas of life sciences. Uh, we're even seeing pharmaceutical companies cutting back now. You really need that granular understanding of what there is to be able to structure proper corporate finance deals that are good for all stakeholders. You know, it's all well and good putting together a sell-side transaction and going out and doing a sell-side. But really, when you want to create value for all the shareholders, perhaps you really want to be um, considering, well, maybe we should be doing the M&A, we should be doing the business development and the fundraising all together. And um, I don't think there are many other people out there who have the capability to do that. And that's what attracted me to Pharma Ventures. Right. There's an interesting couple of points there and uh, just to, to pick up on. If you're going to do multi-track processes with the research in the background, maybe there, are, there aren't that many houses out there can offer it. Let, let's first talk a little bit about the, the change in the market and where things currently are or, or what you think they are. I mean, you've, you've been in the industry a long time, so you've, um, you've seen a number of ups and downs. Um, um, so I'm interested in, in your views of is this a different? Is it just a cyclical nature of things? Obviously, the trigger points are different. You know, we we, we don't have a, a war in Europe and an energy crisis every time that triggers it. There are other other factors. But do you think this is we're, we're going to be the same? I mean, the IPO window is kind of nailed shut right now. <laughs> um, one or two have managed to prize it open a bit, but uh, so is that that put more emphasis on on people needing to do that? Let's get the strategy right. Let's get the the understanding of where we're positioned right. Um, and then let's make sure we do, we, we know we have as many, let's say, shots on goal that we do a uh, look at a financing, we look at a, uh, a deal type space as well and, and maximise our opportunity. I think the fundamentals are the same. The catalysts and the drivers are somewhat inconsequential. If you're sat in a biotech running out of money, it doesn't really matter why the market closed. So the effects are different for each of the areas of life sciences. I think what's very different this time round is the amount of capital that was raised was considerably larger than in, seri in previous downturns. So perhaps the effect is going to take a little bit longer to feed through into the industry. The number of quoted companies who are um, in trouble now is much larger than it has been in the past. Uh, and the markets are, whilst there are some IPOs being done, um, they are fundamentally shut for both primary and secondary offerings. This has a knock-on effect for um, the industry that we will see in services, in medtech and in biotech. Now, if you're running a biotech company today and your venture capital uh, investors haven't said that uh, they're going to fund your next round, I would say you need to be considering 
all of your corporate finance options. You can't afford to hope that the next round of data is going to be positive. Um, it creates a binary business model that just doesn't work. I was part of a war game about 10 years ago where we ran um, a strategic assessment between companies in the United States and the companies in Europe. And there was a very interesting dynamic whereby the American companies tended to get a lot more money. They funded their management companies um, to simply do the science. Whereas in Europe, there was much more of a drip feed attitude and it was sort of became binary business models. So that, that still pervades, I think, does it? Unfortunately, it does. I think the bigger um, venture capital companies have learnt uh, from that. And now even in European companies, they do deploy more than enough capital to um, create value at the next inflection point. So they believe in their management and they follow the US model. But there are a lot of companies in Europe, certainly within the biotech space, that have had this drip feed. Um, they've been invested in by smaller venture capital companies. And perhaps the firepower isn't there to drip feed the entire portfolio. So if you're not at the head of queue, if you're internal investors, then perhaps now is the time to start thinking about, well, how do I get through this dry period? And you don't have to just cut programs. You don't have to sack people left, right and centre. You can, we've seen companies that we were talking to at Bio recently who sold their Chinese rights to um, Chinese companies for upfronts. We've seen others licensing out their programs um, to reduce their own cash burn, whilst also considering down rounds and external financing outside of the investors that they have internally. But the point would be, time is not your friend. So uh, we could get into the time value of money, but that's a, that's a different conversation. But while you're running out of funds, and you don't have the resources internally to cover all of these options. So M&A, joint venture, out licensing, financing, these are time-consuming processes. My feeling is it would be better to, rather than say, give that to three different people or try and hire five different people internally to do it, come and talk to a group like Pharma Ventures that has the capability to manage all of the corporate finance functions that you're looking for. Another interesting change in the marketplace was I think a lot of corporate finance is driven by auction processes. People tend to wait serendipitously for assets to become available. We're finding that people are now becoming, because there's so much competition for the good assets and a lot of M&A has already been done, particularly in the pharma services area, people now are wanting to do search and find. They're willing to invest, spend the money, find the right asset, uh, identify it and find a way to secure it before um, an auction process starts. And we would agree that that is money well spent because if you can identify the assets strategically which are important for your business, that's far better to go in, perhaps even pay a premium for securing them, but it won't be the same premium as if that asset was put in forward in a, an auction process. Farmers still have the same needs that they ever had which is you know their pipelines wax and wane and diminishing they need to fill them they need to be competitive they want the best assets there's always been a maybe a, a kind of view that they can afford to wait and pay more later because they can um and so you know i still hear pushback in in the marketplace saying particularly with novel assets with novel MOAs or novel targets, you're still we're still hearing the, the yeah, come back when you've you've got more clinical data, proof of concept. And and that then puts extra pressure on on those companies because 
they've got to fund that. And, and <laughs> to be competitive, so it kind of becomes a sort of vicious circle, do you think? And I think that's why a company like Pharma Ventures is so important, because it's not just about positioning of the company, it's knowing who to go to in the pharma companies that is willing to look at these early assets. Early asset deals are being done, but you need someone with 30 years of experience in the industry to be able to identify, you know, where do I take this in Novartis? Where do I take this in into, into Pfizer? So you're absolutely right. There is a tendency to overpay for late stage assets, but that's becoming more competitive. We do now have have a, a well-established large-scale biotech um, industry uh, and those players are starting to compete with the pharma companies for those late-stage assets and many of them are willing to go out and buy companies particularly if they're using equity um, whereas um, you know the pharma companies almost exclusively have to use cash when they're doing these things or try and get a licensing deal. I guess pharma want to have a knowledge of as, as broad a knowledge as possible because they've they've got all the pieces to take such assets forward it just maybe they don't have the the individual sector experience either whether it's disease device diagnostics whatever to to as you say understand what what the right positioning is and whether it fits with them so it's to slavishly follow the the well this is our strategy and this is what we do what we do do you think pharma needs to be a little bit more flexible in what it's doing or should it just carry on slavishly following well these are the areas we're in I think the whole industry is reassessing actually how it goes forward. I think precision medicine, stratification of patients, clinical trials, um, our understanding of biology, um, AI in silico, robotics, it's having an impact. And I'm not entirely sure that anyone yet knows exactly where it's going to go. Uh, the impact on clinical trials, the regulatory process, there will be, I think, changes that we see across the industry. Certainly the model that we have today is too clunky to deal with the way that the science is evolving, the speed with which the science is evolving. So yes, I do think there will be changes in the way um, that they do their acquisitions, but the vast majority of it, at the end of the day, these are bottom line driven companies and it's about profit. So a lot more late-stage deals will right. still be what they focus on. You're listening to the Pharma Ventures podcast, where I'm talking to Andrew Guys about all the influencing factors on deals in the current market. Everybody goes in with the aim of thinking, well, my asset or assets are the best ever. Uh, of course they are, or otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. And therefore, I I'm, I'm want to deal with a big pharma, so that's what I'm going to hang out for. Um, and that's kind of adhering to the, to the old model. Should they be thinking a little bit more, maybe innovatively or, or broadly or flexibly, and thinking, sure, we need to engage with those people, but, but the chances are, if you're, particularly if you're early stage, you're going to get pushback, but we should also be, in, be engaging with you know, the upcoming biotechs, the bigger biotechs that you just referenced there, because a deal with them as they're emerging and growing, I guess you need to be more nimble in the marketplace. You don't necessarily need the massive sales force and massive reach. You can do things um, in many territories and commercialise assets, um, even if you're you're not Pfizer, GSK, AstraZeneca or whatever, just Sanofi, whoever. Yes, obviously there are certain indications where that's easier than others. Um, so if you have a targeted sales force, then yes, you can take those assets forward further yourself. I think nowadays some of the specialty pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies have the ability to um, sell uh, a broad variety of products globally. There are definitely partners out there other than just pharmaceutical companies. For biotechnology companies, and we've, we're focusing on that and perhaps 
perhaps we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the other subsectors of um, life science yeah. as well. But um, in terms of biotechnology companies, uh, the priority has to be, I think, survival nowadays. Um, uh, how do I get my most important assets through to an inflection point where we create value for our shareholders? Um, and I talked about the flotation that we did of GenMab, and I think it's the perfect case in point. Uh, they came out, it was a spin-off of Medirex, um, it was the darling of Europe, um, it was the first time really that um, investors got a chance to invest in a pure play European antibody company. It went through its own struggles. You know, if I had a pound for every chief technology or uh, business officer who told me, oh, I could have bought Gemab when it wasn't worth very much, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. then they they cracked Dewabody um, and, you know, look where they are today. So I would say um, believe in yourself, but have a look at what strategies are going to get you through to the next uptick. It could be three to five years away from now. Um, and that means leveraging all aspects of corporate finance. So the business development, as we said, the fundraising, joint ventures um, and M&A. So don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket because time's not your friend. And if it fails, there's an inevitability about it. Yes, we're already seeing people coming to us with three months' money left on their balance sheet and saying, can you help us? And it's like, probably not. Yeah, well, we can have a go, but yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. how far are you going to get in three months? So really plan ahead and, and, and plan multiple multiple tracks. So we were coming back to the, the multiple track thing that you, you referenced earlier, because typically we used to see people come and saying, I want to get a licensing deal. Great, we'll run a licensing deal process and then we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. But that's probably not the most effective way to go forward these days. No, and but even with the licensing, you can run it yourself internally as a small biotech company, but it takes too much time. You've got to establish relationships with all your partners. Um, you've got to identify the right people to talk to. All of that takes investment in time, which you may not have. If whilst you, doing your day job. Whilst doing your day job of running the company, exactly. Or raising finance or selling the company because the VCs want a 10x on their initial uh, investment talking to people like Pharma Ventures who already have these processes established, they can quickly identify what are the unique selling points that you have to offer, what are the value enhancers, get you out to market quickly to the right people and you'll save months, which would be worth, I think, um, easily what any potential fee that you have to pay um, these advisors for. It doesn't have to be Pharma Ventures, but I certainly advocate um, using advisors um, in today's marketplace. Yeah. I mean, no guarantees as with anything, but but you need to spread your bets. Yes, there are very few biotechs out there who have the resources to run a tri-track process, mm. never mind a dual-track process. So, And that's why it tends to become binary. We try one step, oh, that doesn't work. Try another step, that doesn't work. Because you simply don't have the resources to do it. And in times like this, when you're running out of money and there is no um, guarantee that the money will be available uh, when you want to do the next step, Go and talk to an advisor, get the help. And, and talk to one that, that can do all of those, uh, try track or buy track if that's what you're going to do, uh, and can do the strategy and, and analytics piece as well. 
Exactly. You have to understand the fundamental science to be able to position it. And whereas some of the large um, banks um, and accountancy firms, very, very good at running a process, transaction. If you have a tax-driven process, yes, go and talk to PwC. Don't come and talk to Pharma Ventures. But um, if it's something that requires forecasting future revenue on the back of fundamental science in any area of life sciences, come and talk to the experts, the people who've done it. Yeah, and say we, we, we do sit in that space. Other advisors are available, of course, but uh, to use the well, you well use phrase, but I don't know who they are. Uh, okay, we, you mentioned earlier, we talked sort of almost exclusively as well about, about therapeutics and pharma and biotechs. We, we haven't touched on med techs and diagnostics and pharma services. Is, 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 the, is it the same for them? Are they so dependent on VCs or, is, or, or are the dynamics different? I think the dynamics are always different. I mean, med tech has historically always been an M&A exit. Therefore, uh, they're not as exposed to the boom and bust of the IPO cycle. So there are fewer medtech companies that have taken money um, that perhaps didn't get them to where they needed to get to, have become public and now can't raise enough funds to get to the next stage. I'd say the medtech arena is probably the least affected um, by the boom and bust. Is that also because VCs in the medtech space, there are fewer of them, but they have an understanding that this company's got to be funded all the way through to, to market and they tend to be able to do that rather than therapeutics who can come in series A and then they can't follow it. Yes, I think they are a, a specialist niche of investment and the investors in those areas do tend to understand what is required and that they are taking the companies through to an M&A exit. In the past, we've been out into the, into the market with, um, with, with interesting offerings which actually fell between investor groups. So whilst they were really fascinating, the investment world, investor world wasn't ready for it. And it was, there was one which was a tech or a, or a, a pharma play and the pharma players, VCs got the pharma bit, but they didn't understand the tech bit. And the tech investors understood the tech bit, but didn't invest in pharma. So in the end, nobody wanted to invest. Uh, investors are more savvy now, and they, they can go broader than they used to. I, I think at the smaller stage, certainly in the UK, we have a very active VCT space. Um, but they're limited in the capital that they can employ. Um, but they are experienced in what they do, and they understand business plans. Um, they forecast it through to exit, and they will invest in those businesses, which they have the funds to take all the way through to exit. There are very few crossover funds which will do med tech and pharma and AI, simply because the resources and the skills and the understanding that you have to have uh, to invest successfully in these markets nowadays require a level of understanding that can't be split across all those areas. So a couple of questions. Is that specialist investors that, that do AI, um, and if you're in that space, you need to be talking to them, whether you're an AI diagnostics company or an AI therapeutics company or an AI drug discovery company, is it the AI bit or is it, do you go to the traditional um, areas of there? And... It, this is a bit of a crystal ball thing. So is do you see AI being doing the same sort of thing as I just name-checked a few, SIRNA, cancer vaccines, um, um, uh, microbiome, where everybody piles in and gets really excited about it and thinks, yeah, this is, this is going to solve all these problems. And then there's a hiatus while we wait for something to come out of the clinic that goes, oh, it did work. I mean, an SIRNA was great because that went up and down and up and down. And now we're, we're, we're back in again. It's What do you think? 
I'm fortunate in some ways because um, I was uh, head of business development in an in silico drug design company called De Novo Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge 15 years ago. So um, had some direct experience with in silico drug design and um, the software used for basically rational drug design. You have a target, you build a molecule in silico. The space is incredibly vast compared to the chemical space that you have in a high throughput screening. Um, and therefore, the idea being that um, within that space, if you could find a hit in your screen, you will find a novel hit in the in silico space. You then look at in silico mapping for biology, finding new targets, finding stratification of clinical trials, personalized medicine, biological design. So can we now, um, I, I don't think it's quite there yet, but could you design an antibody from first principles? I, I don't think we're there yet. So my feeling is, as we've seen in the past with SNPs, high-throughput screening, the other technologies, what you will find, and we're already seeing it with benevolent AI, is that when you take that program and you start getting some candidates, you have to pick them and you have to make the bets on those. And the amount of capital that is required to take those forward almost forces you to transform from being a platform company to being a product company. And that's historically how it's almost always happened. And we're seeing it with Xientia, we're seeing it within Silicon Medicine in the Far East. I'm not entirely sure if the time lag between application of AI for the biology companies like the recursions and the other companies out there is not a little bit too far away for the investors to see a significant return on their investment at some point in the future. It's still 20 years till a product's going to come to market and the significant revenue comes through. So I'm a true believer in rational drug design. I think the more that we understand in biology, uh, the better the programs will be at delivering products, uh, patent busting, scaffold hopping eventually we will get there with um, antibody research say there are about nine steps in terms of uh, getting an antibody ready uh, as turning it from a concept into a drug Um, and with robots we will take those nine steps uh, and rationalize and then with computer learning we'll get iterative processes where we will get better and better and better at understanding once you've got an idea how do I turn it into a drug and we'll turn that down I think at Sometimes it can take up to two years to turn an initial idea of an antibody into a drug. We'll get that down to months. But unless you understand the fundamental mechanisms and the biology behind it, just because you have a picomolar antibody doesn't mean it's going to work. Right. And that you sort of brought us full circle back there because you quite sort of described very well there that, that, that what AI companies or similar companies or in silico companies are capable of but they're still going to have to wait for 20 years for it to hit the market and actually make serious money. So they've got to survive that period. And their means to survive that period is either through VC investment and going out or through doing deals with the things that they're discovering and they've still got to pick the winners um, or JVs or doing other areas, all of which leads us back to you need to be understanding your positioning, understanding where you fit with the market and the big players who are going to make you money and be engaging with them to to do deals or be engaging with the investment community at the same time um, or the markets when the IPO window is back open again. Um, so the multi-track thing that we, we talked about earlier seems to be, it's exactly that, isn't it? It's that, that's what you kind of have to be doing. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't matter if you're a preclinical asset or a phase two asset. If you run out of money, 
you run out of money. So all it's the, as simple as that. All the AI, IO, SI, whatever in the world isn't going to save you if you haven't got any money. I haven't really talked about pharma services. And that's, that's an interesting space because when, when times are tough uh, or tougher, um, certainly big pharma tends to outsource things. Um, and we, re- we have seen consolidation in the, in the pharma services business in recent years, just because there are a lot of, of smaller ones around and other ones wanting to add capability. What is the sort of the tougher economic conditions for biotechs and pharma what does that mean to the pharma services business are they are they getting squeezed or is is this a time of opportunity for them i think it's both there's obviously always winners and losers um when there are any changing circumstance it was interesting we were at bio we had a big team there there were seven of us there um, i think over 150 meetings it was quite clear uh that corporate finance and doing deals is back on the agenda and it was very interesting to see that the room was perhaps two-thirds full of service providers. Interesting that Novartis is creating its own service business, even though it's just spun off Sandoz. Uh, EMD is trying to sell uh, biologic space um, while its other products come through. So um, an awful lot of competition. And talking to people there, yes, the impact on preclinical services is already being felt. Mm. Um, everybody that we've talked to is saying, you know, there are projects which they thought that were coming through um, may not be coming through. There'll still be strong supply from pharma companies. They have already outsourced it. They're not going to rebuild uh, internally. Although we are seeing from a manufacturing point of view, some people who um, were looking at doing new build sites, they're finding now that uh, just simply getting the materials and the expense isn't possible anymore. So we have certain fine uh, mandates for finding brownfield solutions. So people are having to rethink where they are. The effect for private equity could be interesting. I think a lot of them now will be thinking, right, when's the time to jump? When do we flinch? Um, how do we maximise value today? Do we carry on consolidating? Do we become consolidators? Do we manage to run this business so much more efficiently than other people have in the past that we can go through these downturns by having a full range of services? We did talk to a lot of people. It's not entirely true that the full range of services synergies always face, feed through. Um, just because one team in pharma from preclinical takes on a project doesn't mean that it will particularly stay with the full service CRO or CDMO because the phase one and phase two team pick them up. So I think that might be a bit of a myth. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but yes, I think with the tightening of the fiscal availability, the increase in the price of debt, we will see the shift being from investment into consolidation, as you always do when there's tightening. Uh, on the other area, though, there is perhaps in production and CDMOs in the cell therapy space, that is a technology play now. Um, I think we've seen over 150 different technology plays and we talked to people in the RNA theatre. No one really knows how that's going to play out. So that's an interesting um, sector. Do you bet on a certain technology and acquire that company or do you sit back and wait? Um, Certainly some of the multiples in the space being paid um, are... Um, excessive. We talked to the head of corporate development of a large public company in the supply space, and she said, how do you rationalise the irrational? Mm. And they're looking at it and saying, we would have liked to buy that type of business, but we're not going to pay X time revenue when we think we can only justify 
two or three times. So um, I think some reality is also going to come back into the marketplace and we'll see people, again, we talked about this all the time, coming back to fundamentals. What is the science going to generate in terms of earnings at some point in the future? Therefore, how much can I pay for it today? Whereas people have been willing to take gambles on exit multiples because they've seen high prices in the marketplace and said, right, I'll take a punt. Um, I can get 10x in the marketplace two years from now. That's no longer available. The game has changed. Right. Is there an, an innovation element to, to this in, in the, the CRO, CDMO space, CDMO space? Because typically they they do what pharma wants. Pharma says, do these things for me. And they go, that's fine. We've got the capabilities. We can do it. And they'll, they'll bolt on bits and pieces. Are we seeing CMO, CDMOs becoming more innovative and adopting technologies that are going to be needed tomorrow or and, and making a sort of bit of a bet to differentiate themselves is that part of the consolidation and the multiples that you talked about or is are they just going to keep doing what they've done I think they might have wanted to and I think from the conversations we were having with the salespeople um, at bio no it's about people who can pay um, today um, taking punts on technology is not for them if a client came to them and said we need to access this they'd probably try to do it on a licensing type arrangement first if if it was a big enough deal then they might consider doing the M&A but I don't think those businesses which are bottom line led are going to be um, risking taking punts on technology they are not certain they're going to get paid back even for ones like say Charles River who, who've got one of everything just about and and um, particularly in the preclinical space will will look to to bolt on things that they haven't got um, well, we'll see. Um, certainly, you, know, you, you were at the meeting that we were at, the, the company that we talked to um, said they have internal rates of return that they have to justify to their board. Um, and if they don't feel they can do that, they won't buy it. Yeah, so it's still going to be justified by what's it cost and what can we get back for it. There, 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 there's always an economic um, element to this. It isn't just about the shiny things that everybody thinks are great. And again, back to why you need to have multiple multiple streams of capability not just the science not just the where it is and also the um the 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 economics as well one point i would say and this is what came out of this meeting is these companies don't because they are so focused on revenues one of the things that's holding them back is they don't feel they have the internal capacity to make these assessments so um, we are looking to work with these larger companies to do these strategic assessments so that even if they're not purchasing today they're aware of what's out there what is coming through what might have an effect and that's where we're finding that it might not be an m&a deal today but by doing that strategic assessment for them there might be an M&A deal in the future. So you know what something needs to look like to tip the balance and actually say, now it's worth worth going after because the conditions are right. Exactly, because if you're not aware of it, somebody else will buy it and then it's gone. Makes total sense. Yeah, again, multi-track, multi-levels of knowledge. Okay, um, Andrew, we've covered a range of topics here. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you and getting your insight on on the, the market, the science, and, the, and how we stand astride both those and make things happen for people. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you. For more information on other Pharma Ventures podcasts, go to www.pharmaventures.com forward slash podcast, where you can also subscribe. Pharma Ventures, the deal experts.